Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In April 2021, the European Commission introduced the first regulatory framework for AI within the EU. Last Friday, after a marathon set of negotiations, EU policymakers reached a political consensus on the final details of the legislation. While the AI Act will still have to go through a few final procedural steps before its enactment, the contours of it are now set. To find out more about what was decided, I spoke to one journalist who reported directly on the negotiations in Brussels. I'm uh, Luca Bertuzzi. I'm technology editor at uh, Euractiv, which is a media specialized in European affairs. You have been covering these trilogue negotiations in Brussels around the AI Act which was an intense uh, couple of three days. Uh, I understand at least one 22-hour session that started Wednesday going into Thursday, just wrapped up late Friday night. How do you feel? Tired, of course. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, uh, I've been following the AI Act uh, since uh, it was first presented as a law. So it has been quite a long ride. You'll see a lot of uh, late I mean, commentary now because AI has become such a hot topic. And I can tell you also that the whole mood has changed around this legislation. At the beginning, everyone was like, what are you doing? This technology is not there yet. And now the mood was, oh, you're not fast enough. This technology is moving too fast for you now. So yeah, these very intense negotiations, 36 hours across three days, They show the level of commitments EU policymakers had to close what was perhaps the most important tech file under this uh, legislative mandate. There is a photo accompanying your piece on your active of European policymakers crowded together, what almost looks like a sort of photo from a holiday party or something. Many of them (laughs) on a knee crouched down in front of a little box that holds a couple of plants. And you've got uh, Thierry Breton flashing a thumbs up. Was there that sense of a celebration at the end? Yeah. I mean, of course, these are politicians, so they all look for a PR success. But I think here uh, there, w- there was a reason for celebration. First, because, I mean, this was the, the first AI law in the Western world. Of course, there is China too, but at the international level, this is most likely going to become the international benchmark, just like the GDPR became the benchmark for data protection. And I can already tell you that there are governments across the world getting in touch with the commission, discussing this law and how they can replicate it in their jurisdiction. So, I mean, of course, the, the, there is a human factor there too, because Uh, When I talked to sources, some of them, they were so exhausted that I was asking for details that they couldn't remember because it was discussed maybe 12 hours before and they had such a long agenda. But at the end of the day, there was a a very high political pressure to, to close this fight also for its international relevance. 
So things were potentially on the rocks, it seemed like, kind of coming into this. There were even headlines that we had one on Tech Policy Press about the possibility that the AI Act might uh, even fail over disagreements in particular over how to regulate foundation models. How did that end up shaking out in these negotiations? Yeah, it is true. I think it came very close to that. We have to keep in mind that this was presented in April 2021. Of course, the whole hype around ChatGPT was not there yet. It was the European Parliament that introduced a strong regime for foundation models. At the end, they found a compromise having two tiers, so horizontal rules for all models plus some extra uh, requirements for models that have a systemic risk. There was skepticism from countries like France and Germany because they have their own AI startups that are trying to compete with big tech like Mistral AI and Aleph Alpha. And there was a clear message also coming from ministers from these two countries earlier this week that they considered the text was not mature yet. They asked not to rush. So usually these sort of messages come when you want to derail a legislation. That when you hear there is no impact assessment or let's not rush it, it's usually buying time means that you don't want it. And, you know, you don't want it now. Why would you want it later? Um, so I wouldn't say we are out of the woods yet because the agreement needs to go through the council, which represents EU member states. Uh, there is still a possibility of France and Germany speaking out against the agreement. I do not think they will go as far as voting against the AI Act. But I do think that, of course, that the, there was so much discussed during the political negotiation that a lot of details will have to be fine-tuned at the technical level. But that also means that things that are also political could change. And for all the declarations that we heard, all uh, even the details that we have reported, I mean, this is a provisional agreement. We should keep in mind that. So it is still a moving target. Just to be clear for my listeners, we haven't seen a document yet. There's not a, a new draft or something that we're able to review. No, I mean, I, I've seen a couple of working texts, and that's what I've based my reporting on. So, on some articles, there isn't even an agreed text yet. So I think we will see the, a consolidated version maybe in January. As I said, there will be a lot of technical work ongoing for the next at least four weeks. Okay, so let's go through what you have reported because you've given us a great deal of detail on a range of the different points that the negotiations address. First off, kind of a big one, this exemption for national security. Yeah, so this is uh, becoming a recurring thing in uh, EU legislation where countries like France, they want to, yeah, basically they don't want their uh, uh, hands tied. And uh, this broad exemption, well, basically 
what is national security? It's left to the government to decide. By the EU treaties, the national security is already a national competence. So EU law shouldn't regulate these matters. What is happening here is, first of all, it's much broader than the definition of national security you have in the treaties. And secondly, I mean, I won't bore you with the details, but basically to enforce the treaties, you need the EU Court of Justice, which is a much higher level of judicial review. If you have a national exemption directly in the law, it means that national tribunals can apply it. So it's a bit, for the US, it's a bit like the, the federal judges versus the, the state judges. So this would, exemption would also apply to like companies, external contractors, not just to militaries. Exactly. Well, militaries, contractors in the military and defense field, yes. Let's talk about the prohibited practices. This is one of the key pieces of this, essentially what aspects of possible use cases of, of AI are simply off the table in the European Union. Let's go through them. Sure. I mean, there were some that were not controversial. And these were social scoring, which is a practice that we have seen in China. Systems that exploit uh, vulnerabilities like people with uh, disabilities. Manipulative techniques. These were, from the start, they were banned. Then MEPs introduced a ban for systems like Clearview AI that basically scrub the internet for your facial images and create a database. Then there were more controversial ones like emotion recognition. Here the parliament wanted to ban these application in the workplace, in, in schools, in law enforcement, and in border control. The member states throughout the entire negotiations pushed back against requirements for law enforcement because they want to keep a room of maneuver for police forces to use these sort of tools. So eventually it was only banned in the workplace and in education with a caveat that, for example, this is a system that is meant to prevent a driver from falling asleep. They, they can do that. Another ban was on predictive policing. This is considered against the presumption of, in, of innocence, which is a basic fundamental right. The prohibition is based on individual assessments of personal traits to infer if an individual will commit crimes in the future. There was no ban for crime analytics or aggregate data. Finally, a big point of contention was on biometric categorization. And here there was quite a strong clash with the member states. But eventually, the MEPs also managed to ban any system that tries to categorize people based on trade such as race, uh, political opinions, and uh, religious beliefs. So another big chapter was on biometric remote identification, 
this is a technology that is seen as potentially leading to mass surveillance. Again, strong pushback from European governments to keep this, to prevent terrorist attacks and this sort of heinous crimes. So eventually there were some narrow exemptions for law enforcement to use these technologies, as I said, for, to prevent terrorist attacks and to identify the victims of uh, kidnapping, for example, or the suspects of very serious crimes like uh, murder. This is for real time. Now, I, I have to tell you, we haven't seen the text on this, so there will be a lot of details, but there should be a similar regime between real-time and exposed use of RBI. This is important because, I mean, it could have been a strong loophole if you didn't have similar conditions for exposed, because what happens if you just pose the system for a minute and then rewatch it? And then all the safeguards that you put in place are gone. What, what uh, MEPs confirmed during the press conference is that these uh, uh, exceptions for law enforcement will have to be based on national law and uh, the use will have to be uh, strictly necessary. So uh, this is, again, to avoid some generalized surveillance. I'm sure that there are many of these that will have to be really kind of finely tuned. It would be about the details. I mean, even manipulative techniques, kind of where does sales stop and start and where does manipulation start? These are things that are difficult to discern even before you add in the complexity of AI. So I assume we'll see a lot of going back and forth over the details here. Yes, I think so. And I think a big Part of this will have to do with technical standards and uh, finding uh, a common consensus on what is acceptable and what not. Another area is high-risk use cases. So what kind of fits that taxonomy? Yeah. Let's talk about that. What did they agree with regard to what is high-risk? Maybe this deserves to, to take a step back. So the AI Act is based is risk-based, which means that those applications that are deemed to have an unacceptable risk, they are banned. Then there are applications that imply significant risk for people's safety, health, and fundamental rights. These are considered high risk, and they will have to undergo a specific regime of risk management and other governance. So how will you know if your uh, system is high risk or not? First of all, you have a list of high risk use cases, and then you will have to fulfill certain conditions. The list was kind of controversial, again, because where do you draw the line? It, it, it's quite an important discussion in terms of also what sort of society you want to be. So the sensitive areas are, for example, in the field of employment, if you use a system to select candidates, you want to make sure that system doesn't discriminate against people of color, for example. If you have something for the administration of justice, again, you need to be sure 
that system is solid enough, that there are not some weaknesses that you have not considered. So this is just to make sure that if your system is used in a sensitive uh, area, it undergoes uh, some due diligence. There was some discussion about having social media's recommender system in there or not. Eventually, it's not included because this is already in the scope of the Digital Services Act. So they didn't want to create an overlap. Yeah, that was interesting to me as well. And the extent to which that sort of interacts with this notion of systemic risk in the Digital Services Act, which itself is something that is still yet to be well-defined. I mean, the DSA is also in its early stages. There, as in the AI Act, there is a lot of self-assessment for companies to conduct. And there will be also some regulatory dialogue with the European Commission. This is not the sort of regulation that enters into force and everything changes from overnight. It will take some time for behavioral changes from companies and also the idea of how much enforceable they will be will also determine how much, to what length companies and platforms will take it seriously. You've already mentioned some aspects of the way that the AI Act will interact with law enforcement, uh, but there are some exemptions here. Also, there's a lot to do with border control and migration, the ways in which it interacts with those issues. Can you speak to that for a moment? Just some of these kind of, I suppose, domestic security concerns. Yeah. So this is what I was referring to before. The Council of Ministers, which is one of the co-legislators, introduced some some significant carve-outs for law enforcement. For example, one of the principles is if there is a high-risk application and they, based on the system, they need to take a, a decision affecting significantly the life of a person, there should be at least two people to review that system. That won't be the case for, uh, for law enforcement when national governments consider this is disproportionate. So I, I guess with that, they mean situations of emergency or where the time doesn't allow it. Another important carve-out regards the public database. So basically, all public bodies in the EU that use a high-risk system will have to register into a public database. But for police and migration control agencies, there will be a non-public section that will only be accessible by an independent authority. Let's talk about the fines and the penalties. So if you run afoul of this thing, appears to be kind of a couple of different ways you can do that. You can maybe launch a prohibited application. You could fail to meet the obligations of the AI Act. You could potentially fail to provide the EU accurate information about some system you're operating. What types of money could companies expect to have to pay if, in fact, they're found in violation? 
Yeah. So here I should make a sort of caveat because on the figures and the percentages, there might still uh, be some changes. But of course, the the uh, most severe violation is that of using an application that is banned. And the idea there is that you have a minimum uh, fine, which is provisionally 35 million euros, but it can increase up to 6.5% of the global turnover of the company, not of the European subsidiary of the company global turnover. Then if there are violations of obligations for high-risk systems, it, the minimum is 15 million euros and or 3% of the of the global turnover and the lesser violations let's say are half a million euros and 1.5% uh, so overall uh, 6.5 is quite a, a significant uh, number for for a company are there other types of essentially abilities for the European Union to come in and shut down a company entirely or to otherwise kind of police it? If in fact it's found to be, let's say it's invented some runaway AI that there's, there's a need to pull the plug on the servers immediately. Yeah. In, uh, in the most severe cases where there is a risk for the European market, the commission can take an emergency decision and basically ban the system from the EU market. So I understand from your reporting that once this act kind of comes into law or becomes law, it would apply still 24 months afterwards, possibly six months for the bans. What can we expect in terms of timing? What remainder of process do we have to go through before this would essentially come into force? Yeah. Also on the timeline, these could still uh, move a bit. Uh, but yeah, indeed, uh, it should start to apply two years after it enters into force. So now what we are going to see is a formal adoption. First of all, the consolidated text, probably early next year. Then formal adoption could take two, three months. Then it's published on the official journal. So I would say at one point in spring, this will be uh, published and will enter into force after 21 days. So after that, it will enter into applications after two years. So we are talking 2026. So still some time ahead and not impossible to imagine more technological surprises that may come along even in that time. I mean, that was one of the kind of things that occurred, which sort of led to some of the, I suppose, shakiness on the AI Act was just literally the launch of ChatGPT and the recognition yeah. that these generative models would be so important. So I suppose we'll see what happens with the tech as well. Yeah, but I mean, you also need to give companies time to adapt and understand what the compliance means for them. Technical standards will play a big role as well. Of course, the technology won't stop for the AI Act. We always knew that. I think the biggest test 
uh, in Brussels, we, we use this termino- terminology, future proofness. I, I find it terrible, but it gives you an idea uh, that there is also a sense that this thing should, should stand the test of time. And the governance model will really be the most important aspect of the law in the long run. Do you have a sense of whether industry had a big impact on this final language? Um, Do you have any sense of the kind of lobbying effort uh, from companies, including Western ones? You've mentioned a couple of EU startups in particular that clearly played a role, uh, especially in this conversation over foundation models. But do you have a sense of what role industry played in these final negotiations? Well, I can tell you that by now, big tech has such a reputation in Brussels that if they lobby against something, they manage to unite the most uh, politicians against them. Uh, I think that they surely looked with great attention what Mistral AI and Aleph Alpha have been trying to do. I mean, you have to keep in mind that, of course, lobbies are the heart of Brussels and the heart of policymaking. But the bigger lobbies in Brussels are not companies, they're national governments. And when you have a company like Mistral AI, whose co-founder was state secretary and has direct access to Emmanuel Macron, the French president, and manages to shape the French position, that is the most powerful lobbying you can have. And that is also why the, this could have derailed and might still derail. I, I think it's unlikely, but there is still this small possibility. Other than that, I mean, of course, this was the biggest concern for big tech, the the foundation model part. Uh, And it was since uh, we started uh, hearing about obligations for general purpose AI. For their misfortune, the idea has matured inside the parliament that not only you should regulate at the system level, so the the concrete application, but also at the model level. And uh, I think there was a lot of discussion also uh, with uh, researchers from the University of Stan that played a big role in developing uh, a good understanding of how you should go to the source of the problem rather than just regulating the output. Well, I appreciate so much you joining me on a Saturday with the EU AI Act hangover that I'm sure you share with many of the policymakers who were stuck there in Brussels working this out over the last few days. Thank you so much, Luca, for spending the time. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.